Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and uh, we're back with another great show for you tonight. Um, got a lot going on and uh, certainly a lot to cover and a lot of ground, but we're also going to be doing some um, clinical stuff talking about what Dr. Joe and his group have been up to recently. And uh, before we get into that, we got to bring in our co-host, Sam Bradley, who is, uh, I believe, house-sitting tonight. So how, how are things out there in Colorado land? Uh, cold. <laughs> I've been ice skating in my SUV uh, all over the place. Uh, you know, snow I could tolerate, ice not so much, and it's been that way for two days. And I'm sure we're not the only place that has that issue, right, Dan, to pod one? Yeah, absolutely, Sam. It's uh, cold across much of the nation, although actually we, we started winter with a lot of snow and cold weather across the Pacific Northwest, Vancouver and Canada, and then Seattle, Portland had some snow to start the winter in December. And now we've really uh, quieted down out there and that's the winter weather has moved east and uh, we've had a lot of a couple of different snow events in the Northeast and Great Lakes with uh, Cleveland getting close to two feet of snow this past weekend, Buffalo getting a lot of snow as well. And um, the big cities missed out on this last storm uh, in, in the Northeast from Washington to uh, New York. Uh, they had mostly rain, but a very windy event. And now we've got just very cold air pressing in coming south from Canada. And that's causing some snow across uh, North Carolina, in fact, and uh, South Carolina uh, late Friday into Saturday. Also ice, pretty significant ice event in places that don't typically get ice. Uh, places like Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina can receive some really dangerous uh, icy conditions late Friday into Saturday. So a very wintry time of things, and it's going to be below freezing all the way down into the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. So um, pretty typical this time of year, you know, not totally unusual, but uh, certainly feeling like winter. And that looks like it's going to be the case for much of the second half of the month here in January with uh, a lot of cold air diving into the east and certainly chances for snow and ice. Oh, joy. So hurricane, you can see where my head's at because I'm so used to hurricanes having names, but this storm had a name. It was Jasper. Is that the one that's been still wreaking havoc across the eastern part of the country? Yeah, I think some organizations will name the winter storms, and I honestly can't keep track of some of them. But yeah, I believe the last one was Jasper, and uh, there's a list of, I think, 26 names that uh, are gone through unofficial names, technically not official ones like the hurricanes are named, but either way, still impactful and um, definitely a, a pretty, pretty cruddy start of the weekend in parts of the Southeast, which I'm sure they're not happy about it. And they also don't have a lot of ways to remove the uh, ice and they don't have as much in terms of equipment. So that's always a challenge in some of these places that are less prone to these events. Well, it's caused a number of MVAs and I can't remember exactly which areas, but I mean, big ones where, you know, trucks turned over and, and, and they said part of that was due to squalls. Can you explain that a bit, Dan? Yeah. Snow squalls are really, really a dangerous, uh, weather phenomenon in the winter where we, we have them a lot in Pennsylvania. Um, and as you head into parts of the Northeast and the great lakes where you get, uh, just a very narrow band, usually of, of heavy snow where you can go from sunny in many cases, or at least cloudy and no snow to a uh, heavy band of snow where it's snowing at over an inch an hour. Um, and the visibility drops from good to nothing in the course of only, you know, a couple hundred yards. And if you're traveling on a road uh, at that, you know, and, and you run into one of these snow squalls, you can have significant multi-vehicle accidents um, 
And unfortunately it, it does happen a lot. It's one of the reasons that it's always, you know, slow down in, in times where there could be squalls. And uh, also the national weather service now issues snow squall warnings, which is a great new product. And that's uh, for s small areas where snow squalls can be occurring and they're sent out to people's phones, like a severe thunderstorm warning would be. Is oh, that new good, this yeah. year, Dan? Uh, it's been rolled out uh, in a couple of different, of the different National Weather Service offices that cover different parts of the country. And I think now it's in most of the offices that would have to issue one. So it was sort of tested in a few, and then now it's been rolled out. It's not, uh, they're not issued all the time. They're issued more like during the day when there's a lot of travel. They don't typically issue them overnight, um, but they are being issued now and they would come through your uh, phone just like a severe thunderstorm warning or tornado warning would. Wow, so how's it been in Baltimore, Jamie? Um, well, we had a little bit of um, wet weather, and then it snowed, but uh, did, none of it really stuck because it didn't quite dip below freezing until the sun went down, and then by that point, the rain had stopped. So I, I expect there'll be some icy conditions on the roads overnight that weren't treated very well during the day, um, but um, it's 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 January in Maryland. I mean, it's just kind of something we're kind of used to, the slushy, icy conditions between rain slash snow events. Well, I don't think uh, Dr. Joe's used to 20 degrees in Memphis. <laughs> right, Joe? We don't get too much of that. Uh, just a, a few weeks every year where it's pretty cold and we get a little snow and ice and then it's back to springtime. Oh, nice. Back to you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I think you know, as you head further south, we talked about people not necessarily having as much the, the, the infrastructure to treat the roads or to, you know, to, to remove snow also with the temperatures over the next couple of days and probably through a lot of the second half of the month here, it's going to be below freezing at night in, in many places uh, as you head even south of Memphis uh, down down towards the Gulf Coast. And obviously you want to make sure your pipes don't freeze and you can let some water drip, drip from a faucet if you're going to be gone for a period of time. You know, certainly want to look up some of those tips during winter in places that don't always get below freezing. Yeah, good point. I remember that uh, freeze they had in Texas a couple of years ago. That really threw a bunch of people. Well, then we got the weird weather of the week, but it's not really weather, but it is a natural phenomena called a undersea volcano that did some real damage in Tonga, right? Absolutely. What uh, that was uh, that was promised. I've been talking to Becky and. Becky and, and, and some of my other friends about this, the, I guess it's the Hunga Tonga volcano. Um, and the, I think it was one of the coolest from a scientific standpoint, one of the coolest uh, atmospheric geological earth events I've ever seen. Um, just the way that the volcano, you know, created this huge plume of ash and it created a shockwave through the atmosphere. You could actually track the shockwave on uh, weather stations as across the world, you could see the pressure rise and fall as the shock wave went over the different weather stations. And there's some really cool animations. Um, maybe we can put some in the show notes about that, which is pretty neat. Um, I think on the, on the flip side, from a non-science standpoint, you know, I think we don't know a lot yet about what's occurred here from a humanitarian standpoint. I saw today that they now were able to land a plane on Tonga to bring some, um, to bring supplies in, but they had to clear the runway of ash by hand. 
before they could do that. And very little is known. I know there was a fiber cable that was cut, so there's not much communication to the island at this point. So I saw a confirmed report of three fatalities, and there may likely be more we don't know at this point. So very little information on it from a humanitarian standpoint. Yeah, there's a lot more information to come and out of this. the tsunami warnings reached pretty wide, pretty far and wide um, that reached out. I know the West Coast of the United States had warnings um, for a period of time right after the eruption stuff. So it, it certainly had widespread effect. Absolutely. Uh, we had the tsunami warnings, as you mentioned. Uh, one of the more interesting things I saw was that the uh, there was fog that morning in Seattle at the airport, and it briefly dissipated. As the shock wave it went over, it basically created enough um, mixing in the atmosphere that it the fog dissipated quickly and then reformed over Seattle. Wow, that's weird. Yeah, they said it was 500 times uh, the energy of the Hiroshima bombing. I mean, that's a lot of energy. So I'm sure there's absolutely, a lot, you know, a lot sorry, of because especially that death rate of three. I mean, I heard it it buried one village. So it's hard to believe it's not more than that, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really was. A, I mean, it's it's an event you don't see happen every day, that's for sure. I know that some of the uh, take a look at some of the the ash, the, the volcanic umbrella, according to this this uh, tweet by someone who follows this, uh, reached uh, 35 kilometers in altitude. Um, some of it may have reached up to 55 kilometers, which is just amazing and shows you how violent. The eruption was, as you were saying, Sam. Did they get any warning at all on on a volcanic eruption? I mean, was this a volcano that's been dormant for a long time? You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it was dormant for a while, but I think the, I think it had been sort of active, and they've been tracking the activity for the last couple of weeks. It didn't sound like they got a lot of notice. That's pretty. No. no. Well, well, can't say that I'm an expert though on. Yeah, well, it's not, said, it's not so. exactly weather, but it certainly, uh, but it does affect the weather. I mean, how much of that ash is going to, you know, be spread far and wide? Yeah, it, it definitely can affect the weather. I mean, we've seen that in, in history with um, different volcanic eruptions. There's a couple of documented cases. I don't remember the names of the volcanoes, but there are some from a couple hundred years ago where there was a lot of, I guess it might have been the Mount Pinatubo eruption for many from a long time ago that caused a. There's like a year without a summer. There's a lot, there's some documentation of that. I think maybe in the 1800s when there was just so much ash that um, they actually cooled most of the planet um, for a while uh, for a summer. So that's it. That that can definitely happen. I mean, I, I'm not sure there was enough in this case to to cause that, but something's really to watch. Oh, my goodness. Jamie or Joe, any any thoughts on the weather before we move on to something happier? <laughs> I'll just have to say, talking about a, a dramatic presentation, I uh, was watching the uh, recaps of uh, uh, the explosion on uh, satellite photography uh, and seeing that plume erupt over seconds, it looked like. Um, and the size of that thing, just uh, really an incredible sight to see. I, I can only imagine what uh, what it was like close by and uh, on the ground there. Well, one more thought, Dan, now that I think about it. Uh, weren't there tornadoes in some place? There generally isn't tornadoes, too, this last week. Oh, was were there tornadoes this week? That's a good question. I'm Florida. not sure I remember that. Florida, Florida yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Doc. 
yes, there were tornadoes in Florida uh, earlier this week. That was all associated with that. Um, I guess it would have been the same. I, I guess it was a couple of uh, days ago there down in uh, Southwest Florida. They, they've had a few severe weather events this uh, winter down there. And there was a, some pretty um, stunning pictures of a tornado that went through parts of uh, like the Fort Myers area and down towards Marco Island uh, caused some significant destruction, unfortunately. So that's not totally unusual for this time of year. If you're going to get tornadoes, you would expect them to be along the Gulf coast um, better there than in, in Iowa. Like we saw them in December, uh, but certainly a pretty serious situation down in Florida. And of course, those people in Iowa are now having to dig through the snow to find what's left. That's sad, too, one after another. Well, let's talk about something happier. Dr. Joe, you were just at one of your conferences. You want to tell us what they were talking about? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, it, it was topped off by a tsunami warning, which is something that really? doesn't happen at most conferences. So uh, I was at the uh, NAEMSP, the National Association of EMS Physicians Conference uh, in Southern California last week or so uh, with uh, several hundred of my colleagues from around the country and around the world. Uh, and uh, great stuff. A uh, lot of... Uh, Scientific research presented, uh, some educational uh, conferences that uh, are in, included in that, such as a medical director's course and uh, advanced topics for medical directors, uh, and a lot of uh, uh, communication and conversation with uh, different uh, entities and groups that are um, relevant to the practice of pre-hospital medicine. So, for example, uh, the uh, the council, the medical directors council for the state uh, uh, EMS officials. Um, so that would be like the state medical directors from many of the states around the country, uh, and then. Um, Representation from uh, our part, excuse me, our partners in the federal government, um, as well as uh, some law enforcement uh, and uh, um, other other related educational entities. So, uh, representation from groups like uh, the National Registry for um, uh, EMS folks in, uh, flight programs and that kind of stuff. So, uh, a great meeting, uh, that was, that was both virtual and in person. And, uh, I, I was, uh, uh, lucky enough to be able to attend in person with lots of masking and everybody vaccinated and frequent testing and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, we, uh, we had a really good meeting. We had to switch out Dr. Joe's, uh, mic. So you're going to find him Sounding a bit different, but I think he's Ooh, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and there he is. speaking a Mickey Mouse voice now? Uh, no, this one's better. <laughs> okay. So, Joe, what were some of the hot topics besides COVID um, that you guys were discussing at the conference? Uh, wow. So, great questions. Uh, obviously, the impacts of COVID are, are many and uh, everywhere. Uh, but we spent uh, a fair amount of time talking about uh, cardiac arrest, is one of my favorite subjects, as you know, uh, and sort of related to COVID in some other ways, 
the how COVID has accelerated many of our um, related healthcare navigation programs. So it's things like uh, uh, you know triage lines and telemedicine and um, uh, just different approaches to taking care of patients, as well as a much broader footprint for EMS as we are now involved in testing and vaccination and uh, all the different all the different things that have come out of that. So to some extent, uh, I, I, silver lining may be a little bit too strong a word to use related to COVID, but uh, certainly the the acceleration effect that it's had on many other aspects of uh, the ever-expanding world of EMS. Uh, so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of conversations there. Well, that's kind of a good segue into my next question because I wanted to talk a bit about Paragon, which, of course, how many years have you been doing that now, Joe? Oh, gosh, Paragon's been going uh, more than 15 years now. Wow, I didn't realize. Yeah, a long time. Well, you know, we've talked a little bit before on, you know, the types of training you do and how that might is certainly going to reflect recent events, recent discoveries, COVID certainly. Um, how has that evolved over time since the beginning? 15 years ago, it was a much different world. Yeah, I, I, you know, Paragon sort of started out of um, a, a realization that uh, particularly mass casualty stuff, disaster medicine, et cetera, was not taught um, very often and was not very broadly available. Uh, because it's a difficult thing to teach. Uh, you know, disasters tend to be somewhat infrequent and not very well scheduled. And uh, and so it, it, it made for a lot of challenges to get enough um, reason to incorporate anything beyond um, CERT-type training where you're a certified emergency responder. Uh, kind of stuff. And so uh, uh, I was and have been obviously for my entire career very involved in uh, disaster response and urban search and rescue. And it, it was clear to me that there were many things that I learned and, and continue to learn from that practice of medicine and that there were <laughs> there were ways that we could simulate that in a lot of ways. And so that that led to um, sort of moving from traditional teaching of giving lectures about responding to um, Katrina or 9-11 or, you know, the Murrah building or whatever, and really creating scenarios that incorporated a lot of the reality in it uh, and sort of get the stress inoculation piece involved there. Uh, and I'm a big believer in realism in training. You need to really train like you're going to do it. So that that led to the incorporation of 
um, cadaveric tissue, um, dogs, uh, you know, the bomb squad, um, and everything else that we could think of to try to make those events as absolutely close to the real thing as we could do uh, and do so safely and impart not only education, but experience, um, which makes people much more functional when they get into those stressful environments to be able to take what they have learned and actually put it to use uh, and get past the sort of shock and awe of the, the, the initial experience. Well, 15 years ago, I think I could safely say that things like active shooter certainly were not as they are now. And I know that's one thing that you guys put a focus on because nobody was really ready to know how to handle that kind of thing. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. You know, things have changed a lot over the years. Uh, active shooter, probably one of the most profound changes in uh, how we approach uh, a scene and how we interact with other agencies and <clears throat> the the incredible impact that um, that change can have on on saving lives. So that was something that we realized early on as part of our work with the military uh, guys as well as our law enforcement partners as we were doing, uh, everything from, uh, you know, bomb squad simulation stuff um, and hostage situations and that kind of stuff to, to quickly roll them into all of that and make them uh, a, a part of our training. Well, and, and in that period of time, too, we went from ambulances never go anywhere but the cold zone and pretty much the same for fire, unless it's a fire. But you know, they've had to come up with different models for that, like RTF, where police and fire are working together, police guarding the firefighters while they can go in and grab somebody and get them out of the line of fire. So I'm sure you've incorporated that kind of thing, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're big believers in that approach of the, the rescue task force concept and um, getting uh, EMS care uh, into uh, those areas uh, as quickly as is reasonably safe to do so, uh, and in conjunction with our law enforcement partners and not waiting uh, around the corner and down the block until everybody says uh, it's all safe to come in now because there's no reason to go in at that point. Yeah, I think the uh, Aurora, Colorado incident was one that really stimulated sorry, uh, stimulated that kind of thing because there were so many people that police were bringing people out, but, you know, it, it just, it was kind of a mess. And I think that really stimulated that. Jamie, what are you thinking? What do you think of when you think of Paragon? I, I, I think when I think of Paragon, I really think of an organization that, that is really focused on, um, building resilient responders. I mean, we've talked a lot about resilient communities, but, um, Paragon really focuses on building resilient responders with their educational experiences. And, and because of that, you know, it's that stress inoculation that Joe talked about. It's, it's preparing them to be able to think under stressful conditions that are beyond even the things they've already trained for. Um, and, and by doing that, make them much 
more able to bring organization to a chaotic problem and a chaotic situation. And and so I think that, you know, that's, that's what I think of when I think of, you know, and we've, we've interviewed people that have gone to the training and, and gotten a similar response from them as well. We have. And I remember the first time I, I interviewed some people, they were just blown away, you know, because those kind of people, they're active and, and they need to feel it and, and be in a situation. And like Joe was saying, your lectures just don't do it anymore. It just goes through one air and out the other. But if you put them in that position and they have to think on their feet, but it's still a safe environment, it makes a world of difference. But just just when they were doing uh, airway training, I mean, I still tease Joe about, you know, walking in and watching him doing basic BVM, bag valve mask, and everybody was just staring at him like this was something new and different and wonderful. And I thought, how does he do that? <laughs> but, you know, using the using the cadavers really made a huge amount of difference. Uh, uh, you know, I got a lot of comments from people saying, you know, I could never get it to work on these plastic mannequins, but, you know, when I realized I could do it on a, a real tissue, it made a huge amount of difference. Yeah, I, I think you touched on several things there, Sam. Some of that's just, you know, confidence in your abilities uh, and your skills. Uh, and I, I think that your comment on the BVM made me chuckle a little bit because I I, I think uh, I remember <laughs> doing that lab uh, with you there. And I remember some of the conversations I had with some folks uh, at uh, that lab and, and several others like it. And that, that really began to get me thinking about how we could better understand and demonstrate the physiology uh, of CPR. Uh, and that that's led to a whole nother career path for me just about um, related to uh, the creation of this model that that we have used for uh, a lot of the CPR and airway research that we've done over the last 10 years or so uh, and you know is, is now appearing in the field as uh, heads up CPR active compression decompression CPR and and many of these impressive advances that we've seen, um, by my uh, great honor to work with uh, some brilliant minds uh, and very inventive people who uh, have collaborated with us uh, to utilize that model to help demonstrate it and to help understand it and to learn some of the many things that we've learned uh, that we simply would never be able to do in in a human trial because we the situation just doesn't allow for that. So uh, I'm, I'm probably most proud of uh, some of that work uh, because I, I know it's it's truly moved um, the, the quality of CPR to a whole new level than anything we ever thought possible in the past. Yes, yeah, truly amazing. So Dan, I don't guess you have anything quite like that in the meteorological world, but <laughs> I mean, it's not like we can just create a tornado for you, but um, what would you think about an experiential training like that as opposed to a classroom? 
Yeah, that's really an interesting question. We can't create weather events, right? But we <laughs> we we do use them as they occur, right? To to um, train train different team members on uh, how to re, you know how to forecast those types of events in the future. So we definitely uh, either save off data as the events occur, or we have systems that are able to go back and look at archives and to basically simulate. Okay, you know, hey, if you were in the position in this situation, what would you have done? to be able, uh, you know, to make a forecast or issue a warning, whatever it might be. Um, you know, that's something that we, we do have as a community. And I guess I had a question too for, for Dr. Joe is, is, is if there is a, um, are, are there certain, like, as you're working with different organizations, are there certain, um, I guess, events or certain things that you think are covered better or people are more interested in doing training on? And then are there certain gaps that typically don't get covered? Or that you wish you would, you know that you wish organizations would cover more of, I guess. Uh, I think that's a great question, uh, and, and you know, uh, <laughs> there's there's an awful lot of depth to that uh, whole concept. So, you know, I think there's no question that each group that we work with has their specific focus, whether it be um, law enforcement, military you know, fire EMS um, or hospital folks. And I, I think that each of those groups tends to live within their own world as as many of us do in, in various professions. And I think that the, the biggest thing that I have seen over the years is that we don't talk to, work with, train with, uh, and communicate with our partners uh, as well as we should. You know, police and fire are the classic example, but uh, I think about um, uh, hospital folks and pre-hospital folks. You know, their two worlds are very different, and I'm I'm sort of always... um, surprised at how poorly the pre-hospital world is understood by um, hospital-based physicians and, you know, the difference between an emergency physician and EMS is, you know, sort of one step apart. But if I'm, if I've got a, a general surgeon or um, uh, uh, critical care doc, for example, that's in the intensive care unit, you know, they, they're many steps away from the pre-hospital world and are all the more, uh, i trying to think of the right word, just inexperienced in that world and don't appreciate the, the how things have changed and sort of where it all is now and what the limitations are and their their expectations and their vision and their understanding of that world are what it was when they happened to do a rotation in the emergency department 23 years ago when they were a resident and since that time they've had very little interaction with pre-hospital medicine and so they you know they're they're just 
they're not educated, it's not part of their world. So, you know, I, I think it's so important to have those groups and communities working together and talking to each other and experiencing each other's world a little bit so that they are better able to work together when the stuff hits the fan. Uh, I, I, I talk to hospital workers all the time about um, the importance of uh, their observations in a hospital setting if they are evacuating after an earthquake, for example, or a tornado. And it's things like, did you, you know, what, what, what did you notice that you need to go outside and when you run into the fire guys and the search and rescue guys that are trying to get into that damaged structure, what information could you give them? What do you know they're going to be looking for that you could tell them because you just came out of there? and you could pass information on to them that would be incredibly beneficial, speed them along, et cetera. And so if you're not aware of what those guys need to know, then you don't know to go, oh, I need to pay attention to where I saw that live electrical wire and where that fire was and that that, that doorway was blocked and I had to go around a different way. I could tell those guys all that and save them having to go find it out themselves. So, you know, it, it's, it's the reason the cross-pollination becomes so important. Oh, I could totally agree, especially if someone who's worked in the 80s and 90s and, you know, had to live that disparity. Um, so we're winding up here, but I know you've been doing some work with the military. Do you see that uh, extending in the future? I do, actually. We we have a couple of uh, jobs with them coming up um, pretty soon. The, the Special Forces guys are definitely uh, um, beginning to train much more aggressively than they uh, than they did during uh, the height of the COVID pandemic. Uh, you know, we just we had to change things around a lot <laughs> during COVID to. Uh, protect everybody. So it's nice to sort of go back to what we were doing before, which is much more out in the field and close quarters stuff and uh, prolonged field care and that kind of thing. So um, I, I really am very confident that those um, activities will continue um, for the foreseeable future, at least. Awesome. So, uh, Mr. Dan, any final thoughts? No, I think that's it for me. Appreciate the answer to that question, Joe. I know there's a lot of a lot to be talked about there. And Jamie, it's all you. Yeah, and, and I think this has been a um, you know a good chance to kind of revisit with Joe all the things that that have been done with Paragon over the years, and 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 the evolution of what Paragon's been teaching um, too. And um, just just to kind of reconnect, Joe, where is um, where can folks find out more about what you have available and what your schedule looks like and maybe things that are coming up that they might be able to take advantage of? Well, certainly check out our website at paragonmedicalgroup.com or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group. Uh, and they can also reach us through the Disaster Podcast or the Disaster Podcast Facebook page. 
Great. And, um, you know, I always look forward to hearing about what you've got going on. Um, and so these kind of recaps are, are a great chance to kind of connect and see what you've got your fingers on the pulse of, because you, you, you kind of are, are on the cutting edge of so many things with the, the conferences you attend, the research you're involved with and the training you provide. So thank you for continuing to provide those types of resources to the disaster podcast community as well. Thank you guys. I love doing it. And I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Dan, um, we, we miss Becky tonight. Hope she's feeling better. Um, where can we find you in the meantime? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at WX Depot, D E P O also within the disaster podcast, Facebook group, happy to connect on there as well. Definitely. And I urge people, you know, if you find something or have a weather question, you know, just pop in there and, and tag them on the question. And we've got, all these resources, including a lot of the guests that we have on the show that are part of the community. And so if you have a specific question that you think can be addressed, um, you know, I know that Dan and the rest of the experts we have on the show are always happy to jump in and and answer them. Um, Sam, where can folks find you? Well, in all the places aforementioned under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, and certainly in the disaster podcast, Facebook group, Jamie. And you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations on there. I even started doing TikTok, so I, I've kind of turned over to the dark side. Um, but uh, certainly um, can find me at disasterpodcast.com and over at the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Um, just go ahead and request to join and jump in to the community over there. Uh, it's a great place to connect. And, um, we certainly, uh, like to hear from folks. We've had a couple of posts from people about the uh, volcano over there and some other things in recent events. And that's what we appreciate is, is people bringing up things that they come across to the rest of the community so that people can stay aware and, and stay informed. Um, but um, good episode tonight, Sam. I, I'm glad you were able to pull in Joe and talk about this stuff. Well, you know, it always gets back to the same things with us, Jamie. It's preparedness and it's training. And whenever you think you've had enough training, then it's time to find another job because there's always something new out there to learn. So that's why we appreciate people like Joe. 